welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. As usual, I'm your host, William Hill, and today is November 6th, 2014. This is broadcast number 71. And as I was saying off air to our guest, who I will announce here in a minute, I feel like I haven't done this very often in the last few weeks, so I'm maybe a little out of practice, but uh, anyway, I'm trust it'll go well. And the subject matter today is one that I'm sure listeners out there have experienced or have had numerous discussions about related to the church and especially the issue of church membership. You know, why do we have to be members in the church? Do we? Does the Bible speak to this subject? Is there a verse that says, thou shalt join a church? You know, that kind of thing. And so that's the topic of discussion today, and we'll be doing this discussion with two men, both um, affiliated strongly with Greenville Seminary. Uh, first, Dr. Ryan McGraw, who is the pastor of First Presbyterian Church in Orthodox Presbyterian Church, an Orthodox Presbyterian congregation out in Sunnyvale, California. And if you don't know where that is, just think Silicon Valley, Facebook, Google, all that, and you pretty much got it. He's also the professor of systematic theology here at the seminary and a recent, well, not a recent graduate, but close enough. He graduated recently from the seminary, recently, a number, number of years ago. <laughs> also um, on the line is uh, Ryan Speck. He is the pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church, and that's a PCA congregation in, I believe, Columbia, Missouri, but he can correct me if I'm wrong on that in a minute. He's also a graduate of the seminary, and if I remember correctly, they both graduated together as well. So, um, anyway, two Ryans on the broadcast, so don't get confused as who's speaking. It doesn't really matter. It, it's both going to be good, So, um, but more about that in just a minute. Just want to bring everybody up to date just real quick on um, what we're doing here. As many of you probably have already noticed, we have updated our seminary website. It's uh, a whole lot nicer, cleaner, and easier to navigate than the old one. Um, but if you haven't seen it before, you can go to the website. It's at gpts.edu. If you have questions about the seminary, um, want more information, that would be the place to get uh, the answers to your questions. In addition to that, we do have the website for the podcast, confessingourhope.com, where all the past broadcasts are released, as well as well as information about what's coming up on the program and um, notes on current on broadcasts that we've already done. So use that website to your advantage, as well as the mobile app that most of you by now have already secured, I hope. But it's free and uh, useful if you're on the go and want to listen to chapel sermons uh, the Theology Conference is on the mobile app as well as this podcast. So avail yourself of that opportunity as well. Now, as I said, we're going to be talking with two men about a subject. Uh, the subject is church membership, what it is, what it isn't, uh, why, why do we do all these things. And it's based on an article that Ryan McGraw and Ryan Speck have co-labored together to write that will be published um, in 2015 in two parts in Ordained Servant, which is the publication arm of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. So, man, it's good to have you on. Um, please correct me if I got any of your background information wrong. Um, but it's good to have you on to talk about this subject because I know, in my experience talking with people, especially those interested in this subject and trying to understand it from a biblical perspective, one of the big questions I often get is, why is, does the Bible tell us we have to join a church? And it seems like a very practical question, but an important one nonetheless. But anyway, it's good to have you on and look forward to discussing this with you. Thanks. It's good to Thank be you, Bill, for having us. 
Yeah, and Ryan McGraw's a veteran of this, right? So he's done this before in, in past respect. I should note, by the way, he was my associate pastor when I was at Emmanuel Presbyterian Church in Virginia. So um, we have history, and um, but it's always good to talk to my brothers on these subjects. I guess we'll just start with um, we'll, we'll start with uh, Pastor Speck. Um, why don't you tell us tell tell the listeners a little bit about how this this article really came to be? What was the what drove the need or the desire to write this in the first place? Thanks, Bill. Uh, sure. One of my early remembrances of uh, this project beginning was when I was fencing the Lord's Supper, and one of the uh, ways that we fence it in the PCA is to say that you must be a member in good standing of an evangelical church. And as I went through the list of uh, requirements, uh, believing in Jesus Christ and to salvation uh, and things of that nature, I really began to wonder why is church membership here as uh, so important as to be mixed in with the criteria such as salvation itself? And am I able to say this in completely uh, good faith and good conscience that this is a proper fencing of the Lord's table? And so really at that point I began to realize I ought to investigate this much more carefully, research it, and be able uh, to explain why uh, church membership is such a, a critical and vital part of, um, of Christianity and particularly of uh, then coming to the Lord's table. Hmm. And also in, in terms of the actual writing of the material, um, I had been doing some writing on this independently and my wife and I ended up listening to one of Ryan Speck's uh, Sunday school classes. We typically listen to sermons and other material from friends and especially from the seminary and we found his material very helpful and edifying and so I contacted Ryan and asked if he would be willing to put some of his material in writing because I thought he had a lot to say that I didn't have in my material and eventually uh, I proposed that we turn this into a co-authorship project and work together and keep writing and rewriting back and forth until we put it together into an article format. Mm. Well, very good. And, and why is this subject... I mean, maybe your experience has been different from mine, uh, I, but why is this subject tend to cause some level of, for some anyway, uh, maybe, fr I don't know, frustration is the right way of phrasing it, but just uncertainty maybe as to the biblical requirement for it? I mean, does the Bible speak to this? Well, I, I don't care. Yeah, anybody can answer. I, one, of the, one of the first points that we make in the article is, uh, and, and this would answer your question, I think, to some degree, if you're looking for a thou shalt become a church member sort of statement in the Bible, you will not find it. Uh, mm -hmm. And that's true of a number of things that we believe in the scriptures. Um, and therefore, we have to work on good and necessary consequence. We have to work on um, the principles and the assumptions and some of the biblical passages that point to church membership as something that is uh, biblical, it is proper, but it does take some work than to arrive at a point where you realize from the scriptures that uh, church membership is both important and um, even commanded by the Lord. 
Yeah, yeah very, it's good. And, and Dr. McGraw, just to follow up a little bit, why is church membership so essential? Other than the fact that it's biblical, and we're going to establish that in a minute, you know, the biblical requirement for it. But aside from that. I think the primary reason that, that comes to my mind is without a formal commitment to a local church by vows and being recorded on the rolls and, and being connected specifically to that congregation and its officers, we cannot adequately fulfill many of the duties of the Christian life. And there are many different illustrations of that, and, and you asked uh, Ryan why this issue has been such a crisis and why uh, it's difficult for so many people. And Ryan mentioned some of the exegetical reasons that there's no direct proof text, but I think there's also a lot of cultural reasons and also um, with some people perhaps even emotional issues that come into this. For example, some people have been members of churches where church power has been abused, and uh, people have, uh, in the leadership in particular, have offended them, and they somewhat uh, give up on the church. We have others in our congregation right now who uh, were influenced heavily by the Herald Camping and Family Radio movement, and were essentially told that the church age was over and they needed to stay at home. And they did that for quite a while, and maybe just to give sort of a foretaste and, and illustrate uh, what we're going to say from the Bible about church membership, this particular man was leading his wife in family worship and came to read in Ephesians where it says the Lord appointed pastors and teachers uh, to edify the body and prevent us from being tossed about by every wind of doctrine. And he immediately looked at his wife and said, this is ungodly that we're sitting at home and we need the church. Now, that doesn't quite raise to the level of a formal church membership by vows. And that's more of a, a pragmatic reason by command to, to be in the church. But what we're arguing for in the booklet specifically is not just a participation in a local church, but a need to commit to it and its officers by vows in order to fulfill many of the duties required of the Christian in Scripture. Mm -hmm. Do you think this is an American problem, or do you think, and, and either one of you can, can comment on this, you're well aware of the fact that as Americans we, we tend to, we take great great pride, I think, maybe wrongly in our independence um you know i'm my own person i do what i want um i don't want to be accountable to anybody else do you think that's is it more of a this issue of church membership is more prevailing maybe in america than it is elsewhere now, I, I don't know how much you know about other countries and the churches and the issues they wrestle with on this front but do you think it's it's more exacerbated because of the american mindset You can go ahead, Ryan. Oh, yeah. Thanks, <laughs> that thanks that a was lot. a punt. <laughs> uh, it's a good question. I don't, I don't think I know enough about um, the rest of the, the world and uh, the church and the rest of the world to be able to answer that um, adequately. I, I know that there is much 
talking and people I've met from different cultures have made it clear that um, outside of America and certain countries there is much more an idea of community. Uh, I've had a sister who was uh, in an Asian country for uh, a while and it's very clear that there is a solidarity amongst uh, that people that they are uh, not individuals that they live for the good of the nation. There's that mindset that's pretty uh, established and clear. Whether or not that then filters down to the church, I can't say. I would imagine it would. Um, and I think it's a, a proper point that um, in the American culture, there is a great deal of individualism, radical individualism, we could say. Um, uh, one man that came into the Presbytery recently said something that really stuck with me. He said that the previous generation rebelled against authority. Uh, this generation just doesn't recognize it. They mm. really don't have any sense that there is authority. Mm. And I think one of the problems with that, when there's no sense of authority, of right, um, uh, people put in positions of leadership rightly, then it becomes a matter of power. What can people get away with? Uh, what can they do and how can they coerce others? So, yes, in one sense, uh, certainly uh, in our culture, in America, I think there is a cultural element to this um, undermining of church membership. Mm -hmm. I think in addition, there's perhaps a problem, a broader problem that is cross-cultural that people don't often recognize. And I think it's related to the sinfulness of our hearts that people are unintentionally uh, undermining the importance of the church itself. And part of why I say that is where we live in Silicon Valley we have a very international congregation, mm. and we've had to exercise discipline and remove people uh, from the roles for neglect of their membership and of their vows. And not only Americans, but we've had uh, Indians and people from uh, Eastern Bloc countries and uh, other parts of the world. And I don't know if that's partly the fact that they lived in the United States for a while or if it's just this general problem. But I think what it comes down to is uh, one of the things that, that Ryan Speck, I think, brings out very well in the material he's contributed to the article is in our society, we have membership in so many different ways and to so many different things and hardly think about it such as we have uh, papers that show our citizenship, we get driver's licenses that give us privileges related to that, we have memberships to health clubs, we have memberships to uh, community service-oriented things or, or volunteer programs, and then suddenly there's this dar jarring disjunct when we come to the church that we're willing to commit and be official members of virtually everything else, and the church becomes the anomaly. And I think that's an interesting feature, even in American culture, where most Americans, all Americans, I would say, are, are members of something, and even value that membership, and especially citizenship, very highly, but do not apply the same criteria to the church. Yeah, I think that's right, and I think that's well said. It, it, it just always has struck me 
is that, you know, here we have the greatest inst in institution, and I use that word in the right sense of how it should be used, um, not made by man, but made by God, created by God, given to, the, given to man, and, but we don't want to acknowledge that it has true authority, it has true um, minister, ministerial capabilities and capacities. Um, we just treat it as ordinary, but yet we'll be happy to join Sam's Club or, or you know, things that really have no eternal consequence of any kind. Um, yeah. And can I follow up on that? Yep. Yep. Uh, and I, I think one of the reasons that is the case is we understand why other organizations would have membership. Um, they they try to bind us, and it's sort of a cheap trick, really, you know, to, mm -hmm. to be a member of an organization that's trying to uh, latch you in there and bind you to them and so forth. Uh, but when it comes to the church, we have a view that the church is a spiritual organization. We shouldn't be using cheap tricks or worldly ways to... Um, bind us to membership and, and we know where we stand as Christians we know that we're part of the church and that sort of thing might uh, the mention of, of membership and, and the necessity of it might tend to put people off because they know how it's used in the world uh, and I think that's a valid concern but one of the presuppositions behind that uh, I'm convinced is this idea that formality is somehow in contradiction to or contrast to real life and spirituality, and it's not. I don't think we were we kept it in the article because of uh, time constraints, but if you look at the Abrahamic covenant, that's made absolutely clear. The covenant promises are given, God binds himself to Abram and Abram to himself, but then later on you have the ceremony in Genesis 15 of the pieces being cut and God passing through them. And then later on you have the sign of circumcision apply. These are formalities uh, that are important formalities as part of the covenant and in no way deny uh, the, the spiritual nature or the binding of God to his people, but enhance it. And the same is true, of course, with marriage. We, we talk about this in, in the pamphlet as well. The marriage covenant, the official ceremony, the, the covenant, the documents, all that's associated with marriage uh, are not a hindrance to the loving relationship that is there between the man and the woman, but they are a complement, they are helpful, they are an outgrowth of that relationship. And so I think there's a dichotomy that tends to be in the minds of, uh, of people, of Christians, that formality and membership somehow denies vitality and, and spiritual life and warmth and, and that sort of thing. And uh, that's very unfortunate. And, and Ryan McGraw had a good point as well, and I think it's worth investigating further and talking about more. Um, and I'll, I'll probably put you on the spot here, Ryan, but uh, that essentially it's to deny, um, to, to have a sort of dualism between spirit and body and how we function uh, in, in both of those spheres. you want to pick that strand up? Sure. Um, I think in, at least in um, historic Presbyterian terminology, just to give full theological disclosure, uh, what I have in mind here is what's often been called the difference between 
um, the church as an institution and as an organism. Mm-hmm. And the idea of an organism is that of a living, vital body. And uh, Bill, as you've already used the word institution, I think in a proper sense, people tend to think of institution as a very cold and uh, distant concept that seems to be contradictory to the idea of a vital living organism. And I think that what Ryan Speck is, is indicating here is that both have to harmonize nicely together. Uh, you could think of it as, as uh, in an imperfect analogy with a relation between uh, the body and the soul, you really have uh, the soul as the living vital principle, but without a body, then basically the separation of body and soul is, is death in Scripture. And so the externals are not incidental, uh, but often very important. And maybe I should add at this point, that uh, listeners and, and readers may wonder, there have been some other things that have, have been written that have dealt with church membership, and how is this material different, or why is it necessary? Uh, we've talked about the problem itself, but I think one thing that we're doing here is, is we're setting the bar a little bit higher, because in most treatments of church membership, people typically address the the issue of the need to have fellowship with the brethren, um, submit to officers, be part of a local church, and so on and so forth, but don't deal with the aspect of vows and membership roles and, and things along those lines. And that really touches into these uh, formal aspects that, that cause some people to bristle and say, where is that in the Bible? And uh, let me give an illustration of that. A relative uh, in my wife's family for years attended a local church. And when we spoke to her about membership and joining the church, she would always say, well, I'm there every Sunday. This is where I pay my tithe. She attended both services. Um, She served people in the church, brought meals to widows. Basically, she did just about everything an ordinary, faithful church member would and should do, and yet she wasn't on the rolls and and said, what's the point? They know who I am. They know where I am. So why do I have to add my name to the rolls? And I think that illustrates that a lot of the material that treats membership often falls short of the question of formal membership and really deals with the issue of fellowship. And what we're talking about here is is the need to commit to a definite body of believers and a definite group of officers and to constitute that relationship by vows. And again, we're combining that as an external expression of a vital and living communion with Jesus Christ and with the saints. Yeah, that's well said. And it's interesting, too, in this article, um, and you've already touched on this, but and I don't know who contributed this element to the article. It's, uh, well, I, article, I say article, it's really not an article, it's much longer. But 
there's these different analogies that you go through, the analogy of the family, the analogy of um, of citizenship, you know, we're citizens of this country, United States, we're, in a sense we're members of the United States. The analogy of the family, I already mentioned that. Then you have the analogy of the, uh, you know, of a body, and, you know, the Apostle Paul gets into that whole discussion there. Um, take us through, and, and I don't care, I mean, whoever would like to, maybe both of you, take us through these different analogies and how do they relate uh, directly, how do they impact this issue of church membership? I'll uh, keep I'll keep up the trend question, and let Speck go first again. <laughs> Another punt. Yeah. Thank you again, Ryan. <laughs> we'll talk about this later. Here, here to oblige. Well, how about I begin with the citizenship, and then um, Ryan, if you like, you can you can take up the family and um, and uh, the body as well. Um, the the citizenship one was very striking to me, in particular from Acts 22. I'm thinking of verses 27 through 29 in particular, where uh, Paul is in trouble with the Romans, and there's a centurion there, and they're uh, about to abuse him, and he mentions that he's a citizen of the Roman Empire. And that gains some immediate respect. And the centurion comes and, with a sense of awe, it seems to me, says, you know, how are you, how are you a citizen? And he said, the centurion himself said, I gained citizenship by a large sum of money. And that struck me. I, I was thinking about that and wondering if a centurion would, would uh, gather a large sum of money, pay it to gain his citizenship, and then have no way of proving it. In other words, he, he gave his money to some a Roman bureaucrat, and then uh, um, it's up to him to vouch for him, or whether there was, in fact, some documentation to that. And the point being that that was such an important and privileged position that I have no doubt it could be verified, that there are records of it, and so forth. And that's the sort of background we have to uh, Paul speaking in Philippians 3 of being a citizen of heaven. And, and that was very striking to me because sometimes we tend to think that in our society we're litigious, we have all this documentation that is necessary for everything because uh, of the lawyers and all this sort of thing. But the Old Testament and the New Testament are, are very much litigious in that sense, very much uh, dealing with documents. One of the passages that was striking to me as well was in Jeremiah chapter 32, and Jeremiah is uh, buying this field. Uh, the Lord commanded him to buy it. And it's amazing to me how much documentation, how much proof is given. Uh, if you allow me, I'll read here from uh, Jeremiah 32, verse 9. So I bought the field from Hanamel, the son of my uncle, who was in Anathoth, and weighed out to him the money, 17 shekels of silver. And I signed the deed and sealed it, took witnesses and weighed the money in the scales. So I took the purchase deed, both that which was sealed according to the law and custom, and that which was open, and I gave the purchase deed to Baruch, the son of Neriah, son of Masiah, in the presence of Hanamel, my uncle's son, and in the presence of the witnesses who signed the purchase deed before all the Jews who sat in the court of the prison. And that's just one example we talked about, we talked to about the, the certificate of divorce that was necessary. And in all manner of documentation and official records that are kept 
in the scriptures uh, with regard to human relationships and um, also, of course, purchases and interactions in that sense. It's not a new phenomenon that uh, there is official documentation and um, uh, legal ceremonies and so forth. It's very much something that has run throughout the Bible and throughout human history, I would say. And so when we talk about church membership in terms of documentation, one of the points we make in the pamphlet as well is that even Christ has a book of life and records names and how then here on earth we are really a reflection of what is done in heaven. Um, so that, that wasn't probably the most cogent statement, but the idea is uh, from the scriptures clearly that this, these official processes, documentation, legal ceremonies, these are not foreign at all uh, to biblical teaching. Uh, Pastor Speck, I mean, you know, okay, listen to what you had to say and read through it, um, and I'm going to take the other side just for sure. sake of discussion. I don't necessarily su support this position. I'm sure you know. But what if someone were to say, okay, that's fine. I agree with everything you just said. Uh, I, I'm, I believe in the citizenship and the ideology that's sort of presented through Scripture. That motif is there from beginning to end. But I am a citizen in the kingdom of God because I believe in Jesus Christ. So why do I have to then formally stand before some bunch of men and say, I'm, I'm a Christian and, um, and I want to join this church and I want to do this thing because I'm, I'm a Christian. I'm, I'm a believer. I'm in, I'm in Christ's kingdom. Sure. And I think the answer I would give uh, would be simply to go back to the scriptures and say, because you cannot keep the commands of your Lord, the Lord Jesus, unless you are. Uh, for example, confess Christ before men and he'll confess you before the Heavenly Father. That's a general statement. More specific one is Hebrews thirteen seventeen that you are to obey those who are in authority over you, as those who watch over your soul. So it's not just Jesus; it's obeying those in authority over you. And and who is in authority over you? Uh, unless you submit yourself to a local church, who really is in authority over you? The same uh, thing abides with regard to the marriage covenant. When Christ says, wives, submit to your husbands in the Lord, that doesn't mean that just any wife has to submit to just any husband. You know, because I'm a husband, I can't go to someone's wife and say, you're a wife, I'm a husband, you need to submit to me. I mean, I know that sounds ridiculous, uh, but the same thing is true of the church. When we submit to those who have authority over us, there has to be a, a group, a body of people that we've submitted to who have authority over us. And that doesn't mean just any elders or le church leaders of any church that we need to submit to them. It means the ones that we have, the ones that we have submitted to. And there's obviously a clear and therefore formal relationship that binds you under the authority of certain leaders. Mm. Let me um, let me piggyback on that and... and uh address some of the practical duties and then come back to the marriage analogy, which I think is very useful. Um, I, I, was, uh, I almost said belong to, but I was uh, attending a church that did not have membership when I was uh, a new Christian many years ago. And our pastor committed adultery and was asked to step down from the pulpit and we went into the process of electing a new pastor. Immediately, the question that came up was, how 
do you elect a pastor without membership? Uh, because the New Testament clearly, I think, shows that the elders are elected by the people and then ordained by the laying on of hands of other elders or presbyters. And the problem ends up becoming without formal membership vows of people committing themselves to a definite body in the church and to definite a definite group of officers and vice versa, the officers by vows committing themselves to the people, it's impossible to actually identify a congregation. So if you call for a congregational meeting to vote on the next pastor, who actually elects the pastor? Is it whoever shows up that day? So you have uh, 100 people that regularly attend and suddenly you have 500 show up that day and now they have the right to choose who's going to be the minister week to week over the 100 that attend? Or is it the current leadership essentially exercising a quasi-Episcopalian authority, almost like <laughs> independent bishops electing their own replacements? And I think that's typically what happens, and it ends up silencing the voice of the people. So in this sense, church membership is not simply enabling the people and the leadership to fulfill a duty, but it's impossible to fulfill the duty without it. And also, in addition to that, it protects both the rights of the congregation and the rights of the ministry. I think dovetailing on that, coming back to the marriage analogy, it is very comparable. Uh, Go back to the woman that I mentioned. She says that she is under those elders and part of that church, even though she's not formally committed herself to it or promised or vowed that that's where she's going to be a member and support the church and its leadership. Usually, I think in our experience, we know what ends up happening. People are under that particular leadership and they supposedly submit to it as long as there's a passive relationship to the church, that they're sitting in the pews and nothing's going wrong, nothing troubles them. But then the second something goes wrong, somebody offends them, um, then they jump from that church and end up attending somewhere else and say, now I'm submitting to these elders. Well, the marriage analogy is very useful there because if you had a man and a woman who are dating and they're living together and the man doesn't believe in marriage and says, well, I'm committed to this woman, well, then eventually decides that I don't need to be committed to this woman anymore. After after all, I'm not bound by vows. I'm not in a marital relationship. And now it's time to go elsewhere. Well, I think that's effectively what people are doing with respect to the church. And just the two examples that we've already listed of obeying Hebrews 13, of submitting to those who rule over you, for they watch over your souls as those who must give an account, and then also the duty to elect church officers. Uh, There are many other examples, but even those two duties alone show that these aspects of the Christian life and the vitality of the church are impossible to maintain 
without formal vows and formal membership and roles. Interesting. You know, and, and you know, as I'm thinking about this subject a little bit more now, obviously having this conversation, um, the one question that just kind of jumped out at me as I'm looking even over this pamphlet um, is we, we, we live in a society that tends to weigh everything by cost-benefit. Okay, okay, so what, what does a person gain if they make a public profession, publicly state that they're going to submit to the oversight of the elders in the church? What, what do they gain from that, and, and what do they lose uh, if they refuse to do that? I don't know who's going to answer this one. No, Dr. McGraw, you can't punt this time. So why don't you give? Why don't you like elaborate maybe on the benefits or the privileges that come from a formal joining with a local body, and then maybe Astrospec can do the things you lose, the things you you, you forfeit. Okay. Um, for failure to do that, does that make sense? Yeah, um, I get the the positive, and he gets all the negative stuff. So <laughs> yeah, the negative's always harder. So. Basically, uh, so have greater confidence in me is what you're saying. I got it. Yeah, that's it. Exactly. Way to spin it. There are various ways to approach the question. Um, on the one hand, as I mentioned, with with the marriage analogy and the duties of the officers, this is not merely a matter of the people identifying the congregation and being able to elect officers, but it's also a matter of the officers being able to identify the people. And we could say, I mean, for example, we have visitors, long-term visitors in our church, and we've still uh, planned to schedule elder visits with these people. Um, part of our visitation there is going to be talking to them pastorally about church membership and directing them that way. And the point is we don't totally neglect them and, and slough them off to the side. But I think that just as there's a particular responsibility between a man and his wife that he doesn't share with uh, towards other women, so there's a particular responsibility the officers have towards those people that have joined the church by vows. And that's how they identify the people for whom they're going to give an account on the Day of Judgment, according to Hebrews 13. And so there's a safety and comfort to the people in that and to the officers. I think also... We recognize, as Ryan Speck alluded to uh, Romans 10 about confessing with our mouths what we believe in our hearts, mm -hmm. taking the vows and doing so publicly before the congregation is uh, an act of worship, and it's an opportunity for the people to testify their love and commitment to Christ. Also, in our family worship, we just finished First John. And we read there that he who uh, loves him who begot, namely God, must also love him who's begotten of him. And so the vows before the church are also testifying uh, not only a love and commitment to Christ, but a love and commitment to his people. And to be willing to express that tangibly 
in this particular place, uh, even in the context where I went to a church with no membership, one of the pastors that was there counseled myself and another friend as young Christians to settle and attend regularly in one place. And part of why he did that is we would go to Bible studies at one church on Monday and a different church on Wednesday and another church on Thursday and uh, then a couple of times on uh, Sunday at this particular church. And even from uh, a practical standpoint, he was pointing out the benefits of being connected to one group intensely and ministering there and enjoying the fellowship. I think the vows are making that more concrete and making a more specific commitment. So mm. a member is entitled to the uh, government and discipline of the church for their benefit and entitled to the fellowship and uh, tangible commitment to that group of people and the ministry of those particular officers. And I think there are, are other blessings and advantages that, that come to it, um, not the least of which would be as, as we are planning to transition, Lord willing, to Greenville full-time in 2015, we've actually had some people going through membership now who were disappointed that I was leaving. And one of the first things that I told them is that if you uh, follow through and you join yourself to this church, you have the privilege of having a voice in deciding who's going to minister to you next. Mm. And that's not a light privilege. Oh, that's very good. Pastor Speck, what do you lose? Well, I think I, I will be saying much as uh, Ryan McGraw did. You lose security. Mm. One of the things that happens when you don't have membership, and one of the things that really does um, disturb me in, in my own experience as a pastor, is the unwillingness of Christians to work through issues, um, to deal with sin in others, for example. Often, uh, membership is is critical to this. If you someone sins against you, someone offends you in some way, you can just leave. Yep. If there's no membership or no accountability and no uh, commitment there. Whereas if you're a member, uh, someone offends you, there's sin there, you've committed yourself to go through the process of Matthew 18 to try to be reconciled to that brother. And mm. the same thing with marriage. You know, when, uh, when a man doesn't want to marry a woman, Ryan McGraw brought this out in the article in the pamphlet, it's often, uh, the state of reason is often, I don't want to get tied down. And that's exactly what you do when you enter into a covenant, when you enter into a vow. You tie yourself down, you bind yourself to work through problems, to uh, be a, a true family. And that's missing if there's no church membership. There's no ability to really have security in terms of a binding, open, vowed love to one another. I think another thing that you miss is unity. And, and I'm speaking not mm. simply in terms of the local church, but in terms of the church universal. 
if someone comes to me from another church, comes to the church here, and uh, begins attending and wants to join, if they had no membership elsewhere, uh, or you know the church doesn't really care about their membership, then there's no uh, ability for me to interact with the other church uh, in any meaningful basis to see is this a proper transfer, uh, and vice versa. Some uh, of the folks here transferred to another church, a much larger church, and I've had to call them up and say, you know, so do you want us to send a transfer? And you know that there's no communication, there's no interaction, there's no unity between the churches with regard to uh, transferring members and uh, passing off the care of members. Rather, the individual Christian is seen just as that, sort of free agent individual going wherever he or she wants, and um, there's no real ability for the church, church to be unified, um, churches communicating and, and uh, so forth. And, and that's a real shame, I think. Uh, and let's say a person is excommunicated from a particular church. That person, uh, in my experience, can often go and just join another church without ever dealing with uh, the sin that really is hindering that person's relationship with God and the church. And so... Um, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and hindering relationships within the body. Um, again, we kind of go back to that whole individualistic mentality that says, well, you know, my sin is my sin, and it doesn't really affect anybody else, and, you know, it's between me and God, and which is complete nonsense. Um, that's just not true. And... Um, yeah, you're right. I think there's a, a you know those negatives to me are just almost scary to, con to even contemplate. It's almost as though you're saying, in some sense, in my real short way of expressing it, you're living the Christian life and you're you're trying to operate without a net, and and you're you're in a perilous position because uh, where do you flee to? What do you run to? Where's that safety and guard and protection that comes from that natural, organic union that you have with other believers? Yeah, and if I can piggyback on that with uh, a semi-random thought, not entirely because it's on subject, but um, I think a lot of our Presbyterian forefathers have made a helpful statement about the church by saying that the visible church is made in the image of the invisible church. Mm -hmm. And if I could unpack that, uh, Bill, you mentioned our citizenship being in heaven earlier, and what if someone says, well, I'm a citizen of heaven, but I don't need to belong to the church on earth. I think this distinction becomes very helpful because the visible church, as the image of the invisible church, reflects it in some dim measure, just like we, as the image of God, reflect God in some measure. And... What ends up happening is if somebody says, well, I'm a member of the invisible church, the church of the elect, and I have no need for the institutional church. My citizenship is in heaven. I'll belong to the church triumphant in glory. The problem is that the visible church on earth is the only tangible means to express our membership in the invisible church. Mm -hmm. And it needs to reflect the internal reality. We recognize that not everybody 
who is a member of the visible church is truly born again. And of course, we admit people as adults on a credible profession of faith. And as long as we have no reason to doubt them, then they're, they're brought into the, the membership by their profession of faith and obedience to Christ. But at the same time, is it not a duty for us as Christians to attempt to reflect the heavenly reality and what's in our hearts as much as possible? And we can't simply say, I belong to the visible church Catholic without belonging to some local body of tangible expression of it. Because then simply what we're doing is saying, well, I'm a Christian, I'm a member of the invisible church, and as long as my physical presence uh, fills a pew or a chair somewhere once in a while, then I've fulfilled all obligations. Well, you cannot show a commitment to Christ and the church without some visible, tangible expression in one local place. And I think what's, what's significant about that as well is um, that this is basically our way of openly acknowledging Jesus Christ. I mean, think about um, the Christians in the first century. They're persecuted. And the author of Hebrews says that uh, they're not to neglect the assembling of themselves together, as is the manner of some. Well, wouldn't it be easy in persecution just to say, let's go hide in the caves, and I'm, members, I'm a member of the invisible church, so why do I need to gather with believers? And there the apostle is saying, uh, even in persecution where your property is being plundered, you cannot forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Well, that's not just a matter of pragmatic getting up on Sunday morning and gathering with the church. That's commitment to God's people. And I think our individualism comes out when we think of Christianity as commitment to Christ, but not Christianity as commitment to Christians. Yeah, it's it sounds contradictory, frankly. Well, and it, just to add, much like marriage, if God has joined the invisible, invisible church, if he has joined uh, those, uh, the way Ryan McGraw is speaking about, if he's joined those together, let no man separate them. Uh, if the Lord is making this connection between, yes, I'm saved, yes, the Lord has redeemed my soul, uh, and yes, the Lord has called me to be part of uh, the church on earth and the church visible, then we should not try to separate those two things that God has joined together. Yeah. I'm reminded of, I think it was Calvin that said, you can't have God as your father without the church as your mother. Mm -hmm. How do you respond to that statement? I mean, obviously the context in which he was writing it had a lot, of, a lot to do with the Roman Catholic context. But is, was that what he was really trying to say? Well, how do I respond to that statement? Um, yes. Amen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, with, well, that's good. Thank you. <laughs> let, let me uh, let me piggyback on that by adding uh, the Westminster Confession says that outside of the church, there's no ordinary possibility of salvation, mm. and they mean there the church visible. That's right. And what's significant there is that comes from a statement in the early church from Cyprian, where he said, "Outside of the church, there's no possibility of salvation." 
what, uh, and I, I won't go into all the history there, but what the Westminster Confession is doing is effectively saying outside of the invisible church, there's absolutely no possibility of salvation. Outside of the visible church, there's ordinarily no possibility of salvation. And that statement is often jarring to people today in light of the discussion that we're having here. Yep. And I think the basic idea is that there are exceptions. You do have a thief on the cross who's not baptized, who doesn't join himself to a local church, and right now is enjoying paradise and worship with Jesus Christ, or of Jesus Christ with his people. And there are exceptions to the rule. But ordinarily, if God redeems and saves sinners just like he sent Paul by the Spirit to Macedonia to preach the gospel. He sends people to preach the gospel. He establishes the means of grace. He establishes a church. And it is through the church, as again Ephesians 4 puts it, that we are prevented from being tossed about by the wind of doctrine, that we are brought to uh, the fullness of, of maturity, of our stature in Christ, to a unity of the faith. As James Bannerman put it in the 19th century, because of all of these things, a solitary Christian is worse than a contradiction. We're not designed to live the Christian life without the church. And it's also one of the greatest blessings that we have, that we don't live the Christian life alone. Yep. Well said. Now, because of time, I, I do want to hasten to what I'm really thankful you, you both have included in this pamphlet, and that is you, you, you had, after setting the biblical framework and using these various analogies, which I think are very helpful, and frankly, I'll be honest with you, brothers, I, I've never read it quite that way before, so I, I very much have enjoyed this back and forth on these various analogies that you've established, and that they're extremely helpful as they illustrate the subject. But then you do include of course, the section on objections to the subject of church membership. Some of them we've already touched on a little bit, um, but I do want to maybe touch on one or two of the ones that you've included. The first one is the one that I think everybody uses at least once or twice in their life when they wrestle through this issue is, you know, doesn't Jesus say we can't, we shouldn't take vows? He does say that. Go ahead, Speck. <laughs> He's, he punted again. <laughs> I'm being polite. Well, actually, I didn't. I didn't. I, I didn't. I, I didn't. I didn't assign it, so he well, didn't really punt. And you're you're the one that wrote this section, though, Ryan. So uh, uh, <laughs> no, we just finished. I so wanna... if, I want to see if you've read it. Oh right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, yes. Christ does say that. He does say uh, that we're not to take vows in a certain place, not to take uh, oaths in a certain place, and. Uh, the point there is the, the context. Uh, every passage without its context is just a pretext, as the saying goes. And he's speaking there, uh, uh, isn't that Matthew 5, is it? Yes. Um, he's speaking there to the Pharisees with regard to their foolish vows, where they basically said, well, if we, if we vow by the the heavens we don't have to pay it because there's nothing tangible associated with the heavens 
if we vow by the altar, the sacrifice of the altar, well, there's a tangible monetary value that we can attach to that, and therefore we have to pay it. And so they were basically uh, undermining the entire significance of, uh, mm. of the spiritual reality, that heaven doesn't matter. Um, only those things that are tangible uh, matter. And, and so Christ, in that context, was saying, no, you, can't, you should not vow in that way at all. But, of course, vows are appropriate. Uh, Hebrews tells us that God uh, swore by himself. Um, uh, we're, we're told to take vows, uh, positively commanded to take vows in the scripture. So um, I think to simply say we are not allowed to take vows is not to understand, one, the context of that statement, but two, the obvious counterpoints in the scripture which speak clearly and command us even to take vows, and if the Lord God himself uh, swore by himself, uh, it seems a rather odd position to say that vows are inherently sinful. Uh, so, right. you know, that that would be the short answer to that. Yeah, yeah I mean, I would, I would simply ask a person, I think, dovetailing off what you just said, is that I would ask the person who says, I can't take vows, I'd say, are you married? <laughs> and they, if they say yes, I'd say, did you take vows? I mean, it, it, you know, let's be consistent here. Sure. Um, you took vows before your wife that you would only have her and that's it. Mm -hmm. Or or you took vows before before your husband, you'd only have him. I mean, was that on a vow before God? Or, I mean, what does that even mean? But anyway, just because of time, I, obviously that's, you know, it's a it's a, an objection that's been, I, I think, played to death. And, and I think it's been de de demonstrated very clearly, even in your pamphlet, but other places as well, that it's just a bad understanding of what Jesus is communicating there. Um, I mean, he had the children of Israel take vows that, you know, all the, it just, it, it, the preponderance of evidence is that lawful vows before God are, are lawful. <laughs> um, but anyway, objection two, I think we've, we've touched on a little bit about the early church uh, maybe not as formalized, uh, so I don't want to spend a lot of time on that one. But objection three, I think, is very practical, and I think there's probably a number of people, and I'll just ask Dr. McGraw to deal with this, um, and you've already mentioned this a couple different times. There are people in our churches, and, and you know, trying to be pastoral towards these individuals who have come out of abusive situations. And, you know, to me, it's an, it's it's one of the objections that I think at least – Though it doesn't hold water, I think there's some really emotional baggage that goes with this. And, and how do you pastorally bring a person out of that objection that seems very real and personal to them? Yes. Um, and, and I've um, experienced this myself as a young Christian, especially in maturing in doctrine and being in a church that taught something very different than what I was reading in the Bible. I myself became very suspicious and distrustful of all teachers and basically took an attitude that uh, all I need is me and my Bible. There may be others that go further and actually still attend church but are reticent to commit them to uh, commit themselves to authority. And what I would say is certainly when we join a church, we ought to be cautious in the sense that if we're going to take vows, committing ourselves to a church and to its officers, we need to ensure that we can do so in good conscience and need to be careful with such a thing. Because, as Ecclesiastes says, it's better not to vow than to vow and not pay. 
But I would try to gently direct such people to various passages of Scripture that say, well, uh, simply because you've had bad elders in one church, it doesn't remove the command of Christ to submit to elders and specific Mm -hmm. elders. And presumably by the blessing of Christ, there can be good elders and no elders are going to be perfect. All of them are going to sin. They'll probably offend you at some point. But this is uh, a matter of communion with Christ by obeying Christ's commands. And that's what I would try to do is direct them back to Scripture and to the commands of Christ and see it as a matter of loyalty to Christ even more than to the elders. Yeah, and you even mentioned here in, in, in the pamphlet about I think human tendency is to overcorrect. Um, I was in a church. There was rotten elders. They were terrible. They were abusive. Whatever the case may be, and even if that was all tr- were all true, uh, we tend to then overcorrect that, go the other direction, and say, I'm just not going to be a part of any church formally uh, just to avoid myself of that problem. I'm not sure how that really – I'm not sure how that actually – removes you from the abuse even though you haven't formally joined you're still there and you still witness it and you probably still feel it so i'm not sure how that helps but um but be that as it may i just wanted to touch on this because i know that that it is an emotional response probably more than a theological response um to this whole subject in general we're out of time uh, as usual time goes faster than you think it's gonna um on a subject that's i think very important and and sadly is losing more and more at least in my assessment uh, is losing more and more ground um in our modern culture uh for for whatever reason and um well i can think of some reasons but um and but i think this is very important uh, material and so uh pastor speck why don't you just remind the listeners when will this be published, um, this this pamphlet that you've put together? I mean, it's four, I think it's 14 pages as I have it printed. I don't know how it's going to actually show up in the in the publication, but why don't you remind the listeners of that and maybe um, how they can get a hold of it uh, when it comes out, if you know, and um, and then we'll, uh, we'll kind of wrap up from there. Well, now it's my opportunity to punt because I'm uh, riding the <laughs> coattails of my esteemed friend and brother, Ryan McGraw, so... He is dealing with the uh, publication issue, so I'll let him answer that. Outstanding. Um, Basically, this is supposed to appear in a two-part article in Ordained Servant, which is the OPC's online journal for uh, officers. And so listeners can find that for free online. And Lord willing, it will appear sometime early in 2015, though I'm not entirely sure which issues yet, but it will be there on Ordained Servant Online, and perhaps we can get uh, the notification out to the seminary uh, community there. And mm-hmm. also, we hope to publish it in a booklet format, since this is an important issue. But we don't. Uh, we we have a couple of ideas in the works, but nothing has uh, definitely been solidified in terms of commitments yet. Very good. Now, this publication is uh, monthly? Yes. Okay. All right, so it'll be two parts, two different months, um, probably, I would assume, back-to-back. At least that would make a lot of sense anyway. Um, 
but look for that early 2015. Um, I do have a pre-publicated published copy that I used for this discussion, obviously. But um, but look for that um, coming out in 2015. It's a really important subject, and uh, especially if you're an, an elder in the church and dealing with this. If you're an elder in the church, you've dealt with this at some level. Probably maybe don't even know it. Um, I know personally we we've had situations where. We have regular attenders, but they get into situations, and you know we try to pastorally help them, minister to them. But you can only go, you get you get to a certain point, and you just you run up against the situation where they're not members of the church, and it, so you you find that tension, and it becomes very very clear uh, in in the middle of that. So if you're an elder in the church, you really want to have a good biblical understanding of this subject, so that you can guide people through it um, and, and teach them why it's so critically important. And I think this pamphlet is going to be a big service and help to those um, those in the church on this particular subject. Men, it's been good. I know you guys are really busy, both of you, and um, but I appreciate you taking the time to talk with me, the seminary, and the community, and the listeners about a subject that I think is often misunderstood, but so very, very important. And so I'm thankful that you've been able to do that. Thank you, Bill. It's always a pleasure to be with you. Yes, thank you. You bet. Well, let me uh, wrap things up by just telling everybody uh, just briefly uh, what's coming up. Uh, I have a potential interview that will be released next week um, with uh, Dr. Chad Van Dixorn. Uh, as many of you know, he has spent pretty much his entire life, uh, I would say a big portion of his life, working on anything and everything related to the Westminster Assembly. Um, and he has recently published a book from the uh, Banner of Truth has published a book on his work there at the Westminster Assembly. And um, so hopefully I'm going to be sitting down with him and talking with him about that book and his work there. It is it is an incredible discussion uh, from a man who who's seen just about everything there is to see about the Westminster Assembly. So look forward to that coming up, Lord willing, uh, next week. And as a, a way of public service, uh, I was going to do this in the middle of the program, and as, uh, as usual, I let it get away from me. Uh, but let me just say this. Um, Greenville Seminary is very dependent upon uh, donations. It, it, it's just a reality of what we do. And the reason is, is because the seminary tries to keep tuition costs at a reasonable level for the students so that they do not leave seminary in, with major debt. I mean, so 80%, I think it's about 80% of the administrative costs come from donations from listeners, come from donations of supporters for the seminary, and from various churches and individuals. And if you feel like that's something you would like to do, uh, it's very easy. You can go to our website, you can get the contact information there at gpts.edu, and you can write or contact um, uh, Gary Modes, who is the director of development here at the seminary, and you can speak with him, and he will be glad to help you in whatever way. Uh, seems best for your situation. Uh, as I said, prayerfully consider this, and if you believe in what Greenville Seminary is doing, and that is simply training men uh, for the gospel ministry, uh, faithfully, confessionally uh, doing so, um, then uh, please contact him here at the seminary, and all the information, again, is on the website for your uh, information. And so until next time, uh, and Lord willing, that'll be next week, um, when we sit down with uh, Dr. Chad, uh, Chad Van Dixorn to talk about the Westminster Assembly, its history and its documents and all the things that it's produced. Uh, we do thank you for listening to this particular edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. And God bless.